Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Tom Farrow, a physical performance specialist and the founder and co-director of Arite Performance. Until August, when the program was unfortunately cut due to losing funding, Tom was also the head of physical performance for England and Team GB7's men's teams. In this episode with Tom, we'll be discussing his approach to speed and agility training, as well as program management. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard. Since its creation, the Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. Combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualization, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individual hamstring strength and imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Myself and Ben Ashworth, as the Informed Performance team, will be releasing some news on a new Informed Performance project that we'll be releasing in the new year. Please hit subscribe if you haven't already to ensure that you catch new episodes over the next few weeks, but also to hear the announcement of what is to come in the new year for us. But let's carry on with today's episode. So here is a conversation between myself, Andy McDonald, and today's guest, Tom Farrow. Tom, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's great to have you on, mate. Thank you very much for having me. Just to um, kind of kick us off, would you be able to outline what you do and, and also a little bit of background story, so um, how you got to where you are today? Uh, so at the moment, I'm uh, primary director of Arito Performance, uh, which is a company I run alongside my business partner, Ian Taplin. Um, I've been I've sort of had the business for the last three years. Um, until the end of August, I was leading the S&C for the England Sevens program, which has been cut, um, but there's some stuff behind the scenes. So hopefully that comes back on board and we're doing, you know, still that journey towards the Olympics carries on. So um, I was leading that program there from June 2018. So just sort of two and a half years in that lead position. Uh, before then, I'd been uh, assistant S&C there with Dan Howes, who then moved on to the Houston Astros, who I think you've had on. Um, and the and then sort of leading into that, around that same period, I suppose if I jump back to when I started at S&C, that might be easier. Um, I sort of left school, just sort of dropped out of school really quite early and ended up working in the city and doing all sorts of stuff uh, and work I didn't want to do in terms of labouring and security work and not really knowing what to do with life. And but I'd always trained, I'd always been interested in training other people. I'd sort of written programs for other people, written programs for myself. So I was I was sort of interested in S and C before I um I knew what S and C was. And I think around the age of eighteen it became uh brought to my awareness that it was an industry and it was a profession. And then so from that point on I started almost working towards becoming a strength and conditioning coach really and that involved sort of going to um sort of night school and then uh, foundation degrees to get into university um, and then i studied u- strength and conditioning science at st mary's university uh came out of there i was fortunate enough to get an internship uh, at wasps rugby and um i was there for three and a bit years um with their first team and then when i left i had a consultant position with their academy as well so quite fortunate to get some experience both elite and sort of development roles quite early on and it was probably around about that time that i started my own business which at the start was just me training individuals um 
but around that I also had some roles with the English Institute of Sport and GB Kayaking, uh, Speedworks uh, with Jonas Dadu, uh, so I worked with them for a year and, and at that same sort of time picked up the England Sevens uh, gig So and that's sort of been going, I've been involved there for the last five years so that's a quick run through of how I ended up here. And what kind of, what what led you to want your own business, I guess, in the industry? Because I think that's quite topical at the moment with COVID. There's lots of um, strength and conditioning coaches who are kind of increasingly building, you know, side hustles, if we call it that, or yeah. completely flipping into being self-employed and having their own business. So what, yeah. yeah, what kind of triggered it? I had lots of calls over lockdown about having your own business. And the first okay. thing I said is actually I'm considering how to stay employed because at that point I was on furlough and getting paid for doing very little. Um, so I think, you know, there's lots of benefits and, and great things that come with having your own business, but there's also a lot of risk and a lot of hard work. So um, I think it was something that I probably always would have done. I was always interested in um, creating my own thing, I suppose. I don't know. It's something I've probably been interested in since I was young in, in business. I'd read lots around business and I read pretty broadly anyway. So it's something that sort of happened quite organically. Um, even when I first started as an intern at Wasps, I was doing always doing work on the outside, which you almost have to in SNC because as an intern, you obviously, I think we got paid two hundred pound a month at the time, which was pretty good for an intern. Um, but you know, you had to earn money on the outside of that to um, to survive. So it sort of just grew, and I think as I had my own business, it then eventually became to sort of contracting work to other coaches, and then eventually. Um, Tappers, my business partner, got involved, and that's where we started to really think about how can we uh, create, I suppose, a, a company that we're sort of proud of and is, is sort of um, working to, to create, I suppose, a performance training company in our own our own idea of what we thought that should look like based off our own experience, both our experience in sport. So, I did have the experience at Wasps when I first was there as an intern, and the club was in a lot of financial difficulty at the time. So I remember two months in having a meeting the whole club having a meeting and everyone being told they weren't being paid that month um so i mean as i say i was an intern so it wasn't a big deal for me because i wasn't really getting paid much anyway but it was very i was very conscious that oh you know you can't rely on this industry in a way it's going to be it can all disappear very quickly so i've always been conscious of that so there's probably is in the back of my mind that idea that you're going to have to be able to support yourself and not necessarily rely on a club or a team's goodwill just to keep you on yeah, it'd be interesting to see if more teams outsource, like I guess Wasps Academy did to you at a moment in time. Um, you know, over the next year or two, especially if if budgets are down, it'd be interesting to see if um, you know, yeah, teams do gravitate to to more external consultants. I think they will. I think they will. I think what will happen is it will probably um, flip to that uh, for a while, and then it will eventually go back to being brought in house. But we're probably at the that's not really started to happen yet. But I think it will start to happen more and more that teams do outsource because what you'll see is the the more, I suppose, experienced practitioners doing their own thing because they can and they've got almost like the following and the, the connections to be able to do so. Um, and then ultimately, the best if teams want to work with the best practitioners, more of those practitioners are going to be having their own business or involved in a business of some sense. So, And I think a lot of teams probably still haven't figured out the importance of what I'd refer to as the performance coach, we could call the SNC coach, and the importance of, I suppose, injury uh, statistics, which I think is obviously 
I think physio is hugely important in terms of that as well and, and, and the speed at which players are able to come back from injury. But for me, the SNC coach is just as responsible for those injury numbers in terms of certainly if they're happening and managing load and all of that. So I think that team, I could see it going that way for a little bit, but eventually then teams will probably just end up paying more and bringing it back in-house. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to watch evolve. That's for sure. Um, I know you've got a, you know, speaking to you per, um, personally on previous occasions, I know you've got an interest in speed development and uh, agility, if we call it that as well. And I've no doubt that that was either born out of uh, working in sevens or definitely couraged along the way. Um, I'd, I'd love to begin by actually just finding out when you started in SNC, how was speed development kind of taught to you or when you were working in SNC early on as a coach? What was the sort of state of speed training like, and, and how has it evolved for you over time? Yeah, I, I think it started a lot soon, a lot earlier than my involvement with sevens. To be honest, I think um, sevens has been an amazing opportunity and 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 place to develop my understanding of speed and, and agility. You know, there's not many sports that probably test it as much as. Um, sevens we've got some incredibly fast players obviously some of the best movers in in the world of sport probably um so it's been amazing to to develop my understanding of that with all the different types of players we've got who are all very fast for different reasons great movers but for different reasons uh, but my interest in speed started probably as early as my interest in snc started because my first introduction to snc was uh, i mean like reading websites like elite fts uh, westside barbell um, you know, DeFranco's training and things like that when I was first getting into it. And a lot of those guys would be talking about Charlie Francis um, and Dan Paff in terms of speed development and and programming almost. So a lot of my early programming, understanding of programming probably came from reading Charlie Francis books. Um, so even before I got to university, my influence on S- from in terms of S&C was almost seen through the eyes of a speed coach. Um and then I was always interested in working in athletics because uh, I felt if you could understand how to develop those maximal outputs in, I suppose, like stopwatch sports, then that would transfer to your ability to develop slightly slower people in team sports. Um, so I was you know, obviously very fortunate to work with Jonas and the Speedworks guys and and, le- and learn an awful lot from those, uh, from Jonas and the other coaches who were around him at the time, uh, Mark Finley and uh, Laura Turner who are both GB athletes themselves, uh, Marvin Rowe, who still works with Jonas. And it was an amazing opportunity to you know, get different philosophies and, and different experiences. And the great thing about athletics and, and working in speed is it's quite a slow pace to life compared to team sports where you've got you know, in sevens, we only had 20 and that was pretty fast pace of life. But um, you know, in 15s, you're getting 45, 50 players. So in the daytime, you don't really get much time to reflect on anything. But the, the nice thing about speed is even though they move very quickly, there's long rests and recoveries, obviously. So there's plenty of time to have those conversations with coaches, with athletes and and, and, and ask them for their understanding of what they do. So Speedworks was an amazing development opportunity for me. Um, I've also been able to go out and train with the um, Cuban athletics team um, with Carlo Buzzichelli, who uh, consults for, for them. And so I actually went out and joined in the training with them which was amusing uh, for uh, for like a, I think 10 days uh, this was probably 2014 2015 and that was an amazing insight and um, so I've always been very interested in athletics and, and speed primarily and I think my the majority of my experiences in team sports so I've always connected those two things and a lot of my 
philosophy would be influenced by linear speed, but then sort of extrapolated to lateral movement and, and how do we apply the, the best principles in terms of efficiency to movement, regardless of what direction you're, you're working in. Yeah. And I guess you're starting to touch upon this now, but I'd love to find out a bit more about your approach uh, to acceleration, developing max speed and, and change of direction and how to tease these out. I'm not sure. We can either go through them individually or if your approach is better explained otherwise we can we can freestyle that part of it um but yeah can you would you be able to talk us through your approach and and maybe these kind of three big things um and and how you do them yeah absolutely so it's probably easier if we start with the end uh and briefly touch on that so obviously everything we're doing in team sport is to help them solve the problem in a moment so i would always say players only exist in the moment they either solve that problem in front of them or they don't Okay, so there's nothing we can do that absolutely guarantees they're going to solve the problem in the moment. Um, otherwise, sport would be very fun to watch or, or be involved with. So we have to appreciate so a little bit of humility over how much impact we can have. Um, so I wouldn't think of anything I'd do in as, as going, absolutely, this will work. But I, obviously, what I do believe is that we can increase the likelihood that they can solve that problem in the moment. Um, and then so I'm working back, trying to unpick that problem in terms of what is made up of within a sporting context as to how I then try to Im- increase, improve that likelihood that they're able to solve the problem in the moment. So the model we use, um, I call skill drill chaos, which I speak to a lot of coaches and they tell me that what I call is a skill they often refer to as a drill and what I refer to as a drill they uh, often refer to as a skill. But the the labels aren't necessarily important. Essentially what it is is a process of working from a closed environment to an open environment, from predictable situations to unpredictable situations. Um, and then if the other way we then break that down is to linear movement, lateral movement, and what we'd call transitional movement. So I think really we're only ever moving linearly or laterally, and you've got your different various types of side steps that are transitioning from one into the other and back into the other again. Um and then within linear, then what I would do is break that down into acceleration, uh, maximal speed, and uh, deceleration. And so, what skill is about the first, you know, closed, predictable part of the continuum is about challenging the technical understanding of the the player, the athlete. So that's where we're talking to them about how they move, how they position, in, um, how efficiently are they performing that movement in a closed environment where they're not having to solve the problem perceptual problem that's presented to them um and so what that looks like from an acceleration perspective there's another continuum i suppose within that which is moving almost from like a force to a velocity um progression and that's partly just because of the specificity of movement so obviously in real terms um all of speed all of acceleration is very fast uh, but I think it's very hard to learn things technically at that speed because your brain's telling your body or trying to pick up what your body's doing. Um, so what we do in terms of moving from this sort of force to velocity or slow to fast continuum is as much for learning and teaching a skill as it is for the specificity of what they have to do ultimately in, in the game. Um, so in acceleration terms, what that means is what we look, we start with is, is a lot of sort of isometric positions focusing on what's happening at the ankle, what's happening at the hip, um, uh, bringing the athlete's awareness to where force is and how the force is traveling from the floor through the body and feeling that come, you know, in switching like the glutes on, hips on, um, and feeling that forward motion through the wall or through whatever it is the fence they're leaning on. 
um, and and just having an awareness of okay of like that end position you can almost think of as a bit like an attractor type state as, as Franz Bosch might talk about but we'll spend a little bit of time on that and then the next pro- progress from that would usually be uh, like a walking variation so that might be banded from behind it might be resisted on the shoulders in front um, but again we're talking about these key parts of that problem so you know keeping stiff at the ankle uh, and projecting through the hips two key things we'd be looking at and um, over time as you're doing this you're starting to understand the athletes how do they prefer to produce force and how does their body want to deal with the force in order to solve the problem you're telling them which is to go forward essentially um, and so you're watching that as you do these drills there's certain people you might recognize a little bit more pushy dominant they're a bit more comfortable pushing there's other people who are a little bit more comfortable pulling so you might change your cues then based on what you're seeing so as much as it's a uh, you're cueing and you're sort of guiding them in a direction you, you're keeping a, an awareness as to what they want to do and being guided back you're being guided by them as well in terms of ways where you direct them in terms of progress uh, and then so from walking drills you might move to like bounds uh, uh you know like resisted bounds so band resisted bounds usually uh, and then we might do resisted runs and then we might just you know straight acceleration so all that and, and we do that quite often in warm-ups anyway there's an obvious benefit to warming up going slow uh, steadily increasing speed um but what it does is it allows time for the athlete to have an awareness of what you're asking them to be able to do or feel which if you just went straight into straight acceleration might be a harder process for them to pick up what you mean because it's very hard to pay attention to what the body's doing even at acceleration which is obviously a lot slower than maximal speed um the way we'd prep for a session then is is i suppose a blend between these drills just sort of acceleration development drills and then what i'd call max speed drills which be anything i suppose vertically orientated force wise in terms of pogos ankling a skip variations b skips um like dead leg a's uh, dribbles scissor bleeds you know anything that is um vertically orientated in terms of how they're producing the force uh, would also be included in the warm-up and i'd be i'd talk to the athletes about the difference between um this is this helps develop acceleration this helps develop maximal speed so there's certain jumping variations that would be more orientated towards uh, horizontal projection obviously like hip dominant greater bends at the knee they're going to all uh, carry over to acceleration uh, stiffer at the knee uh, more ankle dominant um, are going to be more vertically orientated drills and, and they're going to carry over a little bit more to top speed so all the way is you're you're blending a session together it's never really completely linear that you go all acceleration work all maximal speed work um, you, the warm-up would involve a little bit of both and you're communicating that and then you've got the lateral movement aspect you add into that um, but a, a session obviously for common sense reasons, would always progress with maximal speed at the end of the speed session. So you're walking up through that. Um, how's that for acceleration? I don't, I don't want to get lost in terms of the... No, that's really good. That's uh, It's very far, actually. I really enjoyed um, your explanation of what you do there. Um, um, so then, so maximal speed-wise then, it's like, with you know we're talking we're talking about positions within the drills that we're doing so running fast is essentially how much force you put in the floor how long does it take you to produce that force uh, how quickly uh, can you cycle uh, to do that the same on the other side um, and then I suppose there's an efficiency uh, point then in terms of where do you what what direction do you produce the force in and then how I suppose how efficiently uh, are you uh, 
cycling moving positioning yourself in order to produce that force in a quick in a short amount of time um so the way we use drills and the way we break down what an athlete can do is we can direct attention at you know these different qualities and and we're always looking for the limiting factor i wouldn't think in, in terms of solving that problem if we go back to the end point of solving the problem of um they find in front of them in their sport i wouldn't be thinking in terms of um adding something there's very little i think i can add in a way i wouldn't think in those terms i think well, what can i limiting factors can i remove so if they are and in, in a way it's maybe just semantics but um if they're if they can't you know aggressively sidestep at high speed is that a force is that because there's a limitation in how much force they can produce how quickly can they produce the force or is it a technical limitation that they don't understand where to put their body or is it a tactical limitation in the sense that they're not able to read the situation in the way they uh, they could do in order to solve that problem so when i'm um, trying to you know, work back from that problem that moment we find um, I'm always trying to figure out what are the limiting factors. Um, and then I return to this skill drill chaos model and and we spend as much time on the relevant areas based on where we're at, what we feel they need or sometimes where they are in the season. Obviously, early on in the season, early on in a career, we might spend a little bit longer on the skill end of the spectrum. Um, and then as the season goes on, once we're comfortable that they understand those technical positions, we might run through those things quite quickly in a warm up, um, but we'll spend more of the session on the chaos end of the spectrum where it's more, you know, constraints based perceptual situations that they've got to solve the problem. And then for an acceleration task, it's on us to create those constraints. So that part of the, um, that skill gets challenged. So can we create tasks where that skill gets challenged? Um, and the same for maximum speed then. So for maximum speed in terms of, um, game-based scenario for rugby for example we might be looking at something like a a one-on-one it might be 15 meter wide channel it might be 50 60 meters long so you're sort of encouraging a situation where you want them to kick and chase essentially which is a situation you might find in the game where they might reach close to maximal speed um and you know that's that's the that's the chaos end of the spectrum and how we connect that to the different skills and how do you how do you do the change of direction piece? And well, actually, one of the things I'm curious about with that is um, where do you look as well for kind of uh, the, the technical aspects of change of direction? Is there any kind of authors or um, who or who's been influential to you in the sort of change of direction space? Because there's there's obviously a lot of people that work on, um, on in track and field on more linear stopwatch sprinting, but where has influenced your technical understanding of the change of direction and then also how do you approach it so to be honest the change direction is one of the ones that i've just played around with and figured out my own way for myself to be honest there's certainly papers i've read into of testing uh sophia nymphus's stuff around change direction in terms of testing i found that very useful but in terms of the um te- the technique of change direction and how to blend that with agility that was sort of taking understanding the efficiencies of linear movement which like i said to i've picked a lot of that up from um and then almost just going well how how do we most efficiently move laterally and what what does that look like in terms of technique um and then what are the best players doing how are the best players moving and what and, and i'm fortunate enough to have five years working in sevens know either working with directly some of the best movers in the game or playing against some of the best movers in the game and and able to really understand what great 
change direction looks like um and so with in terms of that with basically the to change direction in terms of our lateral movement looks at um really your, your sort of like a lateral shuffle so again just producing force uh in i suppose the frontal plane as um as powerfully quickly and as uh, efficiently as possible uh, you've got your crossover step which i don't actually teach much in team sports to be honest i did some work with tennis players and did quite a lot of work there because they use it a lot more um and i do a lot quite a lot of work in um a, a 180 turn early on from a technical point of view it's not a, a movement that's necessarily used lots in team sports but i think it's one if you can really efficiently go from heading in one direction and you know come back directly in the in the the opposite direction and manage all the forces involved with that then i think that ability transfers then into some of the simpler movements such as just a lateral step or a 45 degree cut uh you know a bit of a, a, a backwards uh you know sort of a, a backwards angled cut um so th- there'd be some like sort of um closed skills we focus on but then we're starting to challenge that in situations. So this is where I suppose the drill aspect comes in. So the second part of the continuum, which is where you're challenging the movement. Um, so they would know, you would tell them the movement you want them to perform, or they know the task they need to perform in advance. So it might be, okay, we're going to have a race and you're going to turn on that cone and come back to this cone, or you're going to race and you're going to lateral cut um, at that at the uh, bag. So like a tackle shield, sorry, or cones you might use, and then you're going to reaccelerate through to this cone. So what that's doing is then you're placing the movement under challenge, you're adding intensity, but they're not thinking then about how they perform the movement per se. They're now just thinking about winning the race. Um, so that's where that sort of middle part of the continuum. And as parts of that, I think definitely um, uh, when we developed this, so Dan Howes, who I worked with at Sevens, he's probably had the biggest impact on me in terms of um, – you know, thinking about some of these transitional skills, there was certainly some stuff that he was doing there when I got there that I've definitely picked up in terms of breaking down the steps. Uh, but in terms of researchers, there's there's none that I've personally um, really read into in a sense that it's influenced my model, to be honest. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, you know, sprinting on one end of the sprinting on one end of the spectrum is a purist event where the the training represents the event more cleanly than say rugby where we've got concurrent training and concurrent physical qualities to pursue. Um, and logically sprinters can focus more time and detail on their running technique than maybe team sports can with everything else that they have to do. There's potentially accumulative loading or movement efficiency benefits to team athletes, team sport athletes regularly competing various running drills and exercises whilst the sort of technique is typically being cued. And we're, you know, as strength coaches, we're pretty comfortable quantifying the gym aspect of physical prep and negotiating what's, you know, quote unquote, normal or effective uh, movement patterns in the gym. But what I'd love to chat about is how do sort of technical standards fit into your approach when you're coaching these team sport athletes? So, so by that, what I mean is, you know, what do you want? How do you evaluate it critically? And, and how does that kind of open skill, competitional, chaotic um, change play out over the long term on field. Yeah, so I suppose um, the first place we're looking is back to that open skill on field aspect. You know how successful are, are they in these scenarios where speed is required, where uh, agility is required? Um, do they seem to be getting stuck there? Um, that's the first point. You know, again, 
how much of uh, is anything jumping out at you as a limiting factor. So that's all, everything for me always has to come back to that because otherwise I think we can get carried away with stuff in the same way that SNC has traditionally been carried away with gym work. Now that speed's becoming um, in vogue, like that's very possible that we all get carried away with overemphasizing how much speed work is and certain technical models are for team sport athletes. And um, obviously speed is more important than what you happen in the gym. For me, you know, everything, they play the sport on their feet and they move around the field. So improving the way they move around the field directly will have more carryover than what they do in the gym. What we do in the gym for me supports how you move around the field. And I suppose then from a, another aspect is, is how do you stay injury free? There's, an, there's a, there's a health uh, aspect to it and there's a performance aspect to the gym, I suppose. And the same with speed really. Um, so in terms of how we evaluate it, there's, I suppose a couple of ways in team sports then that are really easy is your, um, the sort of GPS and output metrics you're getting from a top speed basis. What top speeds are they hitting frequently? How often are they able to hit those top speeds? Um, and that's something I'd certainly, as a key metric from a physical point of view, something that I'm always trying to improve on with the athletes I'm working with, especially in a sport like sevens where speed's so critical. So it's not just what's the top speed, but how frequently can you get close to that top speed? Um, and you would certainly see development in that over time with with various players. Um, and obviously, the more frequently they are, the more stable they're able to get close to that top speed, the more frequently they can hit in game scenarios. The, uh, partly, there's the there's a, there's a top end benefit. Then there's also you know everything they do below that as a percentage is easier for them as well. So that means they're not having to strive to run fast. They're able to make better decisions. Uh, so uh, someone like Dan Norton, whose top speed, you'd see his absolute peak speed getting to around 38, maybe like low 38 kilometers an hour, um, would certainly see how, as he started to push that top speed up in a season, how you know, you'd get greater frequency of 37s um, in training weeks popping up as well. Um, so there's definitely a correlation in, in terms of that point, and that's obviously valuable from a, from an output and, and metric. Um, other than that, in terms of models, I'm, you know, there's key models I'd have in my head of great, you know, like I was talking about stiff ankles, projecting through the hips in terms of acceleration. Um, you can talk about front side mechanics and things like that in terms of top end speed. But from experience and working in, with sprinters, but also working with some very, very fast team sport athletes, there's very there's lots of different ways to be fast, and there's there's you know I think we have to be careful about cramming players into a certain model. So while I sort of start to when I first work with a player, especially if I haven't got more time, I might be a little bit more pushy in terms of trying to prod their model. Um, I would always be conscious of that. Okay, I'm trying to listen to your to you and how you move and understand what you prefer um, before I start changing too much. So in a team sport situation like sevens where say we get a new academy player come in i know i've got four sessions a week and um, a whole year with that player so i might not actually say very much to them in terms of technique at all i might coach them a little bit in some of the basic drills like pogos and, and foot contacts around that but I'd, I'd almost wait to figure them out and understand how they move before i run in and start trying to change everything and uh, i'd always be over conscious probably about just trying to change stuff for the sake of changing stuff anyway um and but certainly you know we've got your best movers in the world in a certain movement how do they move so if like obviously in sprinting we've got 100 meter sprinters 60 meter sprinters 
you know what what sort of KPIs are consistent for them um, across um, all the different ways that they're fast and okay they're probably pretty important for us in in team sports as well and although you don't have the same time as um, sprinters to focus on it and you definitely have to be conscious of that because even in sevens we probably did more speed sessions than I think most 15s clubs would, would find time for um, compared to what you do in sprinting very very little time so I think you have to appreciate how much time you even get to focus on it as well and just appreciate it's going to be little changes over a long period of time um, and but we'd also make sure we're including a lot of those basic drills those foundations of um, you know them, some of them acceleration drills I mentioned some of the top speed drills uh, in every single warm-up we do um, in the same way that uh, sprinters would include those drills in every single warm-up they do within reason mm. I really enjoyed what you said about um uh, it, within that about waiting to figure out how they move before you you know you try to change something or coach it I think we as coaches naturally focus on how we cue and what we say and I think there's a bit of a forgotten art or emphasis on knowing when to not say anything at all uh, when you're coaching yeah and I think I'd almost defer to that early on where possible uh, because that, that's from like like I said I've been fortunate to look work with a lot of fast people in different sports and um, they're all fast for completely different reasons. They all solve that problem of moving very quickly um, in different in different ways. And some of that might be there'll be more frequency bias. Some of them more like you know, stride length bias, more force dominant. Um, some of them more elastic. Some of them more muscular, contractile dominant. And I think once we start to figure out players and understand them, it probably gives us an idea of how much um, progression can we get in certain ways and certain um, certain ways of moving. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a segue, but I know this is something that's also you know of interest to you. We we had Dan Howes on the show, who you, who of course you know, um, and and when Dan was on, we discussed program development and leadership uh, as it related to him moving to the Astros organization. Um, I'd love to discuss program management with you and find out how you philosophically deconstruct uh, or assemble a program. Um, so you know, how do you approach this task, mate? And and feel free to use your own experiences to provide the context and, and kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah. So I think with program management, I've learned an awful lot from Dan. Um, well, I worked with him at Wasps as well and, and obviously worked with him at Sevens and um, certainly in terms of how he used, um, I suppose, monitoring in terms of GPS and, uh, you know, even like heart rate, HRV, uh, your, your basic sort of RPEs and training loads. I've learned an awful lot from Dan in terms of how he, put that together in the various environments I've been able to work with him in. Um, so in terms of process, I've probably picked up an awful lot from that. And in, in just, I think with that, would, there's an awful lot of data that I said I would probably collect with sevens. I think I would, um, but I'm very conscious though with that data, how much of it I present back to players primarily, because I think it can become a fixed point in their mind in a way that it, in a lot of cases, I don't think it should. So we would um, collect all sorts of GPS data. Um, we'd have, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I suppose, all sorts of like strength uh, power monitoring early on in the season. There's different tests that would then carry on through the season more frequently. And then there's others that uh, we'd do less frequently, uh, fitness and speed and, and, and everything like that. Uh, but I'm very conscious of then always throwing all those numbers up in front of um 
in front of the players because I feel they've got enough to be good at, you know, already just in the tactical environment. So while that's very available to them, and I'd make it very um, clear to them that um, they could come and speak and, and I'd produce these, um, I suppose, reports for each player all the time and, that they, and then but I'd like to talk it through with them rather than just here's a, something on the wall and you know you're at the bottom all the time maybe because that's the sort of makeup you are in the player and that's not actually relevant to you being good within the team which I think places can be careful this is a bit of a, a as it's not necessarily about program management but I suppose it's part of it is that um, in terms of managing player um, managing players is program management how do you get the best out of the people you're working with that's program management so i'd always be thinking about that end um going back again a bit like the, the speed model what's the end problem we're trying to solve which is how do they go into a high pressure environment and succeed over and over and over again um which is then you start to piece that again uh part again so limiting factors um okay what and then in terms of understanding I think we have to have a very clear understanding of the technical, tactical environment we're then involved with. What are the aims of the coaches we're working with? What do the sessions look like? What parts of that continuum from skill to chaos are already being taken care of in the training environment? Because that would then determine how much I'm going to have to include within some of the work I do. But in my head, I suppose, I'm always hierarchically ranking uh, things in terms of importance. So the... The most important thing in any program and for any athlete is getting better at their sport in the tactical problems they need to solve. So is that happening is the most important thing. Uh, then there's, the, I suppose, the technical skill of the sport. And then for me, the physical then sits underneath that. And then for rugby, for example, I would split up my influence on the physical. Uh, the, the physical influence I have essentially is on speed and agility and how they move around the field uh, and contact skills. How proficient are they in contact? So I um, did a lot of wrestling uh, in my 20s and I've sort of incorporated a lot of that into developing contact skills within um, rugby players, essentially. So uh, we do a lot of work on that and there's sort of stuff within the gym for both of those things that we're trying to influence that. So those two things from a physical aspect essentially determine success in the moment. And then the other part of that is repeatability, which obviously... Uh, often thought of as fitness i think of it more of as repeatability because we want them to be as good at solving that problem at the end of a game or the end of a tournament or the end of a season as close to possible as they would be in a fresh state at the start of a game um so for me that's where our fitness i like to call it repeatability because it has to connect to that problem that they're facing in the sport um so I would then start to look at a program. I'd look at a, a year based on, okay, what's the, the biggest, most important problem here? So for us, it's been the Olympics um, for the last two years. And, and then all things being considered is still going on ahead next year. So we've still got that in the side of our mind now. So the players I'm still working with, we're still you know, thinking about, okay, how do we make sure that when and, and if this program comes back together, what shape do we need to be in for that? And within the current constraints of not having a program, essentially a full-time program, how do we make sure we're there? Um, so within that, that that most important goal in mind, how do we develop throughout a year to make sure we obviously we're trying to peak then? Um, and then almost every decision I'm making at any moment is going to have a little bit of that most important goal in mind of um, 
like, is this going to help us win gold at the Olympics, essentially? So if an athlete comes in and um, is a bit, you know, feeling a little bit tight in his hamstring following a tough training session, how am I um, making a decision in the gym what I do then? And obviously that decision is going to be related to how close are we in terms of what time do we have available to the most important thing of the year? Um, how much, if I make one decision this way in terms of push on, does it, um, might it help? Uh, might it risk that most important uh, point at the end of the year? And how much actually can we afford to push? Uh, do we? How much time can we afford to uh, let go of here and be a bit more conservative as well? So. I was a bit of a roundabout way of saying it, but risk really it's risk and reward. Everything comes back to risk and reward and every decision you make. And then that's placed next to this hierarchical ranking of what's most important for them, for the sport and for that individual. No, I like that. I really like the way you've broken that down into sort of, uh, you know, the various elements and sort of technical, tactical considerations, um, you know, on top of the strength and conditioning parts as well. So um, no, that was a good job, mate. Um what have you got kind of coming up in the next few months? Um, and, you know, obviously Sevens is on hold, as you've mentioned a little bit at the moment. But, um, yeah, where can people find you? And is there anything people should be looking out for? Um, there's not like, so at the moment, I'm very much focused on Arite and and uh, almost you know, developing that. And it's been a great opportunity through, through lockdown uh, at first. And I've almost just carried on with that since what's happened with the Sevens programme is I've just uh, been able to focus on on business and that's it's going very well and um so you can find us on uh, uh instagram or twitter the the business uh, i think account is uh, a retail a-r-e-t-e perform underscore hq um i think mine is tom underscore retail perform and maybe tom underscore retail for twitter that might be wrong um i suppose if you if you search my name then a, a big bald head will show up um, and uh and you know the websites on there and everything like that uh, so i'm very much focused on that i'm also working like i say uh one-to-one with uh, some of the sevens guys and, and small groups where we can i've got some other sort of uh, athletes and, and people working with one-to-one a couple of times a week at the moment outside of the business and in the background we're hopeful that this sevens things works itself out so um you know at the moment we were planning to be the olympics in august 2020 and hopefully we can be uh in 2021 so we'll, we'll see how that plays out yeah well well um i'll put show i'll put links in the show notes and in the episode description so um people can easily find you on whichever kind of social handle they prefer or your website um but yeah tom thanks for coming on mate it's been it's been great to get to know you and yeah i appreciate your time coming on the show today thank you very much having me mate it's been a pleasure cheers mate thank you Big thanks to Tom for coming on today's show. Myself and Tom connected quite recently and I really enjoyed getting to know him and talking shop with him in the conversations that we've had. And it was great to hear about his coaching approach, uh, especially with speed and agility-based athletes today. As I said at the beginning of the show, around New Year, Inform Performance will be launching a new project that we will announce over the next few weeks. So make sure you follow us on social media to see and hear about updates in real time. You can find us on Instagram at Inform Performance or on Twitter at Inform Pod. But for now, thanks for listening to the Inform Performance podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.